Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Peace family is 19 Keys with the 19 Keys podcast. You're listening to a high-level conversation. Tap in. All right, a word from one of our sponsors. Make sure you tap into Goldwater Products. After you come listen to the information, you're going to need your memory stimulated so you can download everything in that prefrontal cortex. You want to make sure that hippocampus area of your brain that regulates mood, memory, and learning is fully functional and tapped in. Therefore, you want to tap into Goldwater. They have smart malls, sports malls, vitamin C malls, colloidal silver. They have just about everything that you, your child, and your whole entire family needs to stimulate your brain and your body and to make sure that your immune system is functioning. Before you tap into this great high-level conversation, listen to this song by Tezu Kulando called Goldwater. I've been enjoying my life. Hey, listen, man, I don't be careful, man. I stay dangerous. You know what I'm talking about? Um, right now, I'm in um, Johannesburg. So what I wanted to do, actually, um, I wanted to go to um, Kenya. Um, <laughs> you see, you're trying to see me in the room. You know what I'm saying? Look, I ain't going to lie. I be having a full day, and then by the time I turn on the phone, to think about posting and stuff is only when I'm in the room because it'd be so much going on. I just want to absorb and observe, absorb, observe, absorb, observe. Um, so, you know, that's just sort of how I be tapping in um, and, and, and having a great day out here, man. Um, each day has been fulfilling and each day has represented a, a really a different spark and, you know, tapping me into different parts of myself, you know, and evolving, and, um, confirming so much, you know, I got so much confirmation out here and, you know, was able to release a lot of stigmas that existed within my own programming when it comes to the motherland and the people and the particular level of consciousness that exists. But, um, back to, um, Kenya. So I was wanting to, I bought me a ticket Um, I bought me a ticket to Kenya, but I just canceled it because you have to get a yellow fever shot in order to be able to go there. And so, um, you can get you a visa pretty quick, um, because you can get one when you land, but you have to get a yellow fever shot if you want to go to Kenya. There's only so many visa free countries that exist in Africa. Actually, it's a very short amount. Um, yeah, I seen that one a little creative. Appreciate you, right? But um, so I canceled that trip, and right now I want to go to uh, Cape Town, and I want to go to um, um, uh, Swaziland. You know what I mean? I want to go tap in with the people over there in Swaziland, which is like five, six hours away. But there's no plane, so you got to drive in order to get there. So it'll be a dope trip if I can make it. Um, and I also want to go see the Zulu people. The Zulu people would be an overnight trip if I go over there to go see the Zulu people. Um, but I can't even really express all of the things that I've learned yet. I think I really need to put it into a um, um, a lecture. It was I had a dinner yesterday with a Jamaican couple and a Kenyan couple and the host that booked me to come out here. For one, the food that I ate, the food was immaculate, the taste. It was like the only thing she cooked with was love. You know what I'm talking about? Like the only thing she cooked with was love. It was so good. It was ridiculous. I ate into a potato and it was so good that I almost fell over. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's like I ain't never had food before, y'all. I'm telling you, it was that good. I closed my eyes, and it was just like, oh, snap. I couldn't wait to try the rest of the plate. 
And I don't even eat meat, but they was cooking chicken. And I was about to say, man, if I'm going to eat some chicken, this the chicken I should eat. You know what I mean? But I didn't eat no chicken. I just scraped the gravy from the chicken and put it on the rice. But listen, that was important to say because the food, I can't, it's indescribable. It was that goddamn good, okay? The lady was, she, she, she was good at what she did. Now, when we got up to their place, they played, they, they stayed in a, um, a particular spot that, um, they were telling us a story and a history about where they were living because, you know, they were more of wealthy. They had, like, maids and things of that nature. And the area that they live in, because, you know, apartheid out here ended in 1994, which is super important when you understand the history of South Africa. South Africa is in the Gauteng province, which is actually the wealthiest area of Africa. Uh, right in the bottom, you know, it's the wealthiest area of Africa and it's the most advanced area as far as, you know, uh, the cities. And the reason that be is because the white people were developing it, not advanced, but developed, I should say, is because the white South Africans were developing it for themselves. And they had no thought process of ever turning it over to the Africans. They was thinking it's going to always be theirs. So right now, you know, you have a very developed country, but there's extreme poverty in the sense that there's 29% um, unemployment. Um, and to give you an idea of those numbers is that, you know, when our unemployment raises to like 7 to 8%, you know, we consider it to be an emergency and a recession and they got to change laws and bills. But 29%, that's basically 30% of the country can't get jobs. And you're talking about 50 to 60 million people. That's a lot of people that can't work. So there's people on the side that's begging all the time and that's hustling all day, like all day long. They hustling 24-7. They selling bugs, glasses, beads, whatever you can think of. They're selling something all day. Um, and the legal drinking age out here is 18. So the average person begins to drink at the age of 12. So... That's and if you think about that, it's because they have nothing else to do, so they're trying to escape the reality of their economic conditions. So also, the um, uh, marijuana has just been legalized out here. So you know, not only are they getting intoxicated, but they smoking, and they're not really you know really taking that time to think, you know, um, out of their conditions and to create jobs and opportunities for themselves. So having the ability to come to the school and speak and teach them some knowledge of self, teach them a little bit about my journey, and also how to utilize technology to change their economic conditions was super important because he says that, for one, data out here is something that they don't always have the ability to obtain. But I had to change their mindset on that because if you understand that you can import U.S. dollars, right, utilizing technology. Now, the U.S. dollar, so to give you an idea, let me pull out some money. So you got the U.S. dollar, right? So for every rand, we got 100 rands. So you see I got my blue face Mandela sound count right here on screen. Now, for these, that represents like $7. Every 100 represents like $7, right? So your money can go pretty far out here, you know what I mean? Because it's basically times 14, you know what I'm saying? Um, so for every $1, it's like you know, 17 or $14. So it averages out. So in the marketplace, your money can go far. But in the mall, um, they try to, the big corporations try to compensate for um, the price difference. And so you got to calculate it all the time in your head. But anyway, to that point, you know, 100 rands can still buy somebody some food for a couple of days and things of that nature. So, to me, when I'm giving them money, they think that it's a lot, you know, like I could pay somebody a few hundred rands to do something for me and, and that can go pretty far. But to me, it still haven't even averaged out to $100. So, as I'm sitting there, I find myself being super generous out here because, you know, it's not really nothing to me, you know, it's like giving somebody $7, but... If that can, you know, feed you for the week or get you transportation for a few days, then by all means, I see why so many philanthropists come out here 
and they want to start schools and they want to do different things because they understand how far that money can go and how much it can go into the lives of real black people. Um, this separation of the the diasporic um, consciousness is unfortunate because these are like they really just like us, you know, like talking to the mindset of a lot of the youth. And I'm not sure if you all listen to the podcast that I just dropped. I was talking to the millennials. Their, their mindset is aware of what needs to be done. Um, I was talking to the two, the, the, the lady and the young uh, man that I interviewed, and I asked them what was their major. And one of their majors was the young lady. She was majoring in metallurgy and minerals. And I asked the other young man, what were you majoring in? And he said, I'm majoring in mining and engineering. And I thought that was so profound because both of those were things that they could utilize to develop their country, you know. And when you ask people out here, it's usually psychology, African-American studies, some things that are can be considerably non-nation building and not useful in the aspect of you preparing yourself to build your nation up. So the young people out here, you got the first generation of the millennials who are what they consider the older generation considered to be born free. Because when you understand the system of apartheid, apartheid was much worse than Jim Crow. It was a much more complex, sophisticated level of, you know, systematic oppression that was being dealt and handled out here in South Africa. And once you get into it, it'll really make you start shedding tears because you see how what was done in South Africa was the macro of what was spread across the planet Earth and also what's being done in America today. And so it's very, 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 very uh, heart-wrenching when you learn about it and you learn about how they view Mandela, which I already understood, but Mandela was a figurehead the same way he was a figurehead for, or Obama was a figurehead for us. But the way they view the world, at least some from the intelligent people that I talked to, is they have a very conscious, enlightened perspective that you would think comes direct out of the conscious community. And so I believe that if we came over here as black people with the information that we have, it would be readily accepted and utilized. Like the people from what I've experienced and encountered, they love black people out here. You know what I'm talking about? They love black people out here. You know what I mean? At least the ones that I talked to. At least the non-ignorant ones. You know, I'm I'm a different type of individual. I'm a different breed. So I know they've never met a black man like myself that speaks the way I do. You know what I mean? I was talking to the store clerk. Um, and I was about to buy... Um, um, I was about to buy this dashiki. And I was buying like a little pouch and something else. And I asked the lady, I said, is all of these black owned? Because they had a collaborative of different artists and different designers. And she had explained to me, she was like, well, these two are black owned, but this one is not. And I said, you know what? I don't want to take this. I'm good on this. And she said, well, it's not black owned, but, you know, it's it's still made by an African. And I said, no, nah, you know, I don't consider African by nationality and being born on the land. I consider it being in the DNA. You know, she said, oh, my God, I really love that perspective. And everywhere I gave them a tap of consciousness, they loved it and they chewed on it and digested it deeply. And they have a sense of pride in seeing the world in a particular manner to where they're very aware of the reality of white supremacy in a way to where Americans try to ignore white supremacy based on their advancement within the structures and system of white supremacy. They have a full awareness of the global entity that is white supremacy. And that is where I find the beauty and the spirit that exists out here. Because they know what needs to be done and they know what has done. But they don't know everything in order to get it done. And that's where black Americans can come out. Because we have a certain um, understanding and a certain level of information and knowledge that they've never been privy to. So you have to understand the uniqueness of the black experience coming out of slavery for 400 years. We're that one group of black people across the planet Earth 
that has this access to information and knowledge and understanding that the rest of the world feeds off of. A young, the young brother, if you listen to the podcast, he says something so profound. He said, I learned how to be an African from blacks in America. I learned how to be more African from blacks in America. See, we started searching for our history. And in that searching for our history, we started digging deep into the details, into the history, into the confines of it. And the conscious community had really done something amazing with the curation of the information and the knowledge that even the African man says that I've been robbed of the resource of my culture. They came here and stole everything. So yes, I'm an African on African land, but I don't have none of my culture. I don't have none of my artifacts. I don't have none of my history. You know, they 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 banned the Timbuktu library when the Dutch and the British and stuff came. They banned them from their history and what it means to be an African. So they learned so much from the black American listening and learning and adapting and being influenced by because from us, so you understand the difference between, for one, for apartheid, right? The colonialization and apartheid that exists out here was the fact that they were being uh, basically um, um, uh, prisoners in their own country, right? So this is their land. The difference between Americans is that there was black people brought over to America so that basically we were here in America at the same, or, you know, as history goes, the Native Americans are just black people, uh, uh, at the same time as white people. So this land is as much as ours, you know what I mean? Even more, of course, because we built it, you know what I mean? As it is white people. But this is a foreign land still. So America effectively is the black man's land, right? But when you think about it, it was a land that we both came to that we suffered under chattel slavery and oppression. But to be a prisoner in your own land where the percentage of whites are don't even greatly outnumber the percentage of blacks nowhere near is a different level of oppression. When you think about what had to happen mentally to castrate the mind, not to go into warrior mode and take back what was yours. So what ended up happening out here, there was a youth uprising. The youth is what sparked everything for apartheid. You understand me? But you have to understand the history of what happened during that time. Like Nelson Mandela, a lot of black Americans, and we know Nelson Mandela for him being the old man, right? The old Nelson Mandela. No, that's not the Nelson Mandela that the people championed when he got out of jail. It was the young Nelson Mandela. The young Nelson Mandela was considered a terrorist. The young Nelson Mandela told them that we have to utilize violent acts in order to get what we want. So he orchestrated, you know, what they considered to be terrorist acts and bombings and things of that nature in order to produce change. So they locked him up and so many other ones that were uh, what they considered to be extreme in their efforts, but they were liberators of the people and revolutionaries had to go into hiding. But the one who kept the spirit alive the most was, of course, Winnie Mandela. Him talking about Winnie Mandela was the soldier. And they tried to villainize Winnie, but Winnie was not. Winnie had the love of the people, and Winnie is still loved and admired all throughout Africa. But the youth, back to the youth, the youth are the ones who sparked the revolution. Um, the youth are the ones who you know, really took to the streets. And when those youth took to the streets, there's a particular youth, and I went to Soweto at this memorial for this young boy that was killed when they first did the riots, and they started shooting, and he was the first one to get killed. And they still have the memorial to today, and every year the people go and gather around this memorial to remember what had happened during that time. And I thought that was important. You know, we have so many deaths that we get numb to it, but they, they find it so important to remember this time and come together out in Soweto, which is like down the street from Nelson Mandela House. And the the the, the importance of where we are today, when we understand the role that the youth are supposed to take in, you know, um, having that uprising, as they say, you know, war for the young man, you know, you got an old man for counsel. And so... 
today the young South African and the young black American are supposed to equip themselves with the weapons necessary in order to fight the war of producing the change, you know, but if you give the youth, you give the what you give them, you control the food supply, the liquor and the weed, then this is not the same youth that was utilized in order to spark the revolution that eventually comes up to end apartheid, that comes up to end things like Jim Crow. Now, when you understand the difference between the time of Jim Crow, um, you know, segregation out here in America and apartheid in South Africa, there's a 19 year difference. And that's key to note because, you know, I'm 19 key, so I'm going to always find the 19. You know what I'm talking about? But as we celebrated our, or, you know, so called, we celebrated um, integration. The difference was that we had more doing segregation than we did after segregation, right? And so that's key to understand when you understand our plight and our conditions that we fought for something that we shouldn't have, right? So what they realized was that same thing that we realized and Winnie and everybody else was talking about is 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 the what they really needed was what they call they got the BEE out here, which is Black Economic Empowerment, right? So um, they was talking about how that was the thing and that was the status that they was really fighting for um, was Black Economic Empowerment, but that was something that was washed away when they started to do the renegotiation to end apartheid, right? Um, because right now what they're going through is what they call the land summits. And the land summits is, um, the land summits is, compens uh, is taking back the land without compensation. So taking the land from South African landowners, right? So the South African landowners own a lot of land out here. I'm talking about the brother was telling us, he said, sometimes you can drive 30, 40 minutes and one man owns everything in sight. You know what I'm saying? He owns so much and doesn't even utilize the land, you know what I mean, for the most part. And the stuff that he grows on the land that people can't even afford. And the goal right now, and the government is trying to figure out um, how do they take the land back and how do they disseminate that to the people and what percentage of land are they going to take back and how is that whole structure is going to look at now here's the problem the country is in bed with corporations who give thousands of jobs like bmw so bmw is giving thousands of jobs because you know you have the automotive industry out here that's utilizing cheap labor force but at the same time it's feeding families now and at the same time, they have a lot of land. So they have a lot of acres as well. So this would affect BMW. So BMW was talking to the government like, yo, how is this land summit thing going to work? You know what I mean? Exactly. Because if our investors don't find it to advantageous to stay there, then we're going to have to leave as well. So now that's something that they have to regard in their negotiations and the structuring of this land summit. Now, when you think about it, basically the South Africans, I think, should take that sacrifice of you losing these corporations. And that's where the benefit of bringing other people in that can build up industries that may take a little time, but it's necessary. But also, that's where other nations could come in and provide stimulus, right, and, 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 and subsidies so that the people will be able to still live while the industries are being built and that these industries can come in and take over, but the land could be owned by South Africans and they could be paying the South Africans to lease the land. So it will stimulate the economy. And there's many different ways they can do it. Now that correlates with America, right? Cause I'm always correlating things with our struggle out here and connecting the diaspora and connecting the dots because um, you got even brexit another corner of the world it's going through a restructuring deal and black people have to, and the blacks out there the 2.5 million blacks out there have to figure out how that's going to affect them because there's so many different restructurings that go on when you really get into international aspect of things but 
you have right before I came out here, we had the hip hop summit, right? We had Revolt. Now, I understand how important Revolt is. You know, a lot of y'all might not like Diddy, but what he's doing with Revolt is important. Because when I sat there and I listened to the conversations that were being had, they were talking about the Jubilee or they were talking about Ebro was bringing up, you know, the 400 years. And he was talking about ownership and independence and things of that nature, which is very important. And it was a very bold conversation because the same way that the South Africans can free themselves by owning the land and learning how to utilize the land, because that's a big issue is that even if you give the people the land, they don't know how to farm. They don't know how to, you know, milk the cows and they don't know how to do a bunch of different things. So even giving them the land, somebody can come out here and take advantage of them in their land and have them take that over to them, pay them a little bit, utilize that land and make a lot of money. So it's the ignorance that perpetuates the the servitude to white supremacy. So having a younger generation learn how to and learn not how to but just what to do with the land empowers this region of the world so the same thing with the hip-hop community we don't own land right but the one thing that we have is we have this trillion dollar export called hip-hop now here's the other thing you need to understand about hip-hop hip-hop is so monumentally influential when i went out to the uk I'm listening to the music, and they play hip hop, they play grind, and they play house. So, when I go to out here, they play hip hop, they play grind, they play house. I go to America, they play hip hop, grind, house. And so, I'm thinking about this, and I say, all of these black people are listening to the same frequency, the same exact music. What does that mean exactly? It means that their hip-hop is the greatest tool for universal communication between all of our people because we're already on that line of communication. So if we own hip-hop, because right now we don't own it, so the messages that are being spit through hip-hop are not controlled by us, by black people. So the problem with not controlling our land, which is hip hop, is that we don't control the resource that communicates to all black people across the planet Earth. Now, we know that hip hop is owned by Jewish special interests, Jewish corporations, you know what I mean, and record labels. So they are embedding messages into hip hop, and which means that they are controlling the message that's fed to our people. And hip hop is such a powerful tool that all across the planet Earth, we could be putting in messages, right, speaking to each other, but we're not utilizing it to that capacity because we don't own it. So we have this opportunity, though, today, you know, is to align and to get in sync with each other and, you know, grab our land and put in these messages and we can change the entire planet Earth just by reaching the artists, just by the, the music. You can change, you can communicate to the entire diaspora of Africans and black people across the entire planet just through the music. It's the most universal, just the way the internet communicates to everybody, the music communicates to the youth. And that's how you create the youth uprising because they get so many ideas through the music. I asked a brother, you know, he asked me if I was a part of the nation. I said, yeah. He said, I said, how you know? How, what did, how did you learn about Farrakhan and Unabalaj Muhammad and Malcolm X? He said, I learned about it through the music. You know, he said, and when I would hear American hip-hop artists talk about certain things, I look up certain names that they talk about. You know, after I looked up certain these names, then that's when I was able to tap in and know who these people were. So I said, wow, that's powerful. That's powerful, but... He was talking about like KRS-One and other different artists because the average artist now, as they're getting into this universal communication tool, they're not utilizing it to embed any messages that are of any substance. So they're communicating escapism instead of ideas and revolution and responsibility and knowledge. 
and this the tool of hip hop has become so powerful, so powerful that it can't be utilized, you know, to the detriment of our people because it becomes a tool of our oppression at this point. Not only our oppression, but the oppression of all black and Africans across the planet Earth. So talking to going back to talking with this couple Kenyan couple and the brothers from Jamaica and his wife and they were explaining and they were talking about how you know the reality of the world is not just about white supremacy right and I asked this question earlier I said who runs the world and if you're going to run a world you have to run it in a place to where you know the world is in Zionist control the world is in control when you think about who runs the banks who runs the music who runs the media who runs the politics who runs america for one this is a good question you should ask yourselves right and i'm not sure if a lot of you all pay attention to politics at all but there was a time where netanyahu which is uh, an israeli um i don't want to say minister prime minister i don't know how it works out there he's an israeli government official and he has a lot of power and what he did is, during the Obama administration, he came and addressed uh, the White House. Without Obama's permission, Obama didn't even know about it. Because him and Obama basically was beefing. But he came and addressed it to show Obama who had the real power and who was really running the country. And when you think about it, we attack white supremacy. And in our minds, we put this white face of the white American in control of things when they're not. That's not the reality of this country. The reality of this country is it's in the silent Jewish control. Now, people all across the planet Earth witness this and understand this because they have Jewish control all the way embedded into their um, governments and they can see it happening all around them in the world. But to speak about this, you get in trouble. You, you speak about this publicly, the ADL come after you and all these other different leagues that they have across the planet Earth. So the conscious community in America spreads the information and knowledge and the rest of the world know about this. The African man knows about this. The, the man in the UK, the Caribbean man, the Asian, they all know. But the moment you speak about it, you're banned like Minister Louis Farrakhan. And... See, they have a different take on the nation of Islam and Minister Louis Farrakhan than black Americans do. Black Americans don't really appreciate their own revolutionaries and their own leaders, but the outside world appreciates that spirit so much. So their appreciation is like they love the fact that the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan exists as the only one speaking the truth about the global issues and the global elitism that not only affect black Americans but affect them and their country so this itself you know changes my perspective not changes but enhances my perspective and enlightens me when I know how the African man and the people in the UK view it and I think about how the American man has so much hate for each other and but of course the complexity of our issues is enormous you know we view each other through a lens of white matriarchal supremacy and white patriarchal supremacy you know and we have too many other people in our minds to where we can't just view each other as brother and sister as black man black man nah nah to the african they have less white people in their head and what i mean by this is the way we view gender in this country is not from the basis of how a black man views it or how a black woman views it, but from the basis of how a white woman views it, right? The way we view politics in this country is not from the nature of how a black man views it or a white man views it, but we viewing it from the aspect of a white man and a white woman. The way we view each other is not from the natural view of how we see each other, but through the media, through Jewish control, through lenses, we have so many intersected consciousness that exist and so many influences that exist inside our mind that it's impossible to know who you're speaking to sometime when you're talking to a black person because we've been influenced by everybody. 
but ourselves. And so when a black person speak to you from that nature of that black accent, it seems uh, an offense to you because that white man or that black man inside or that white woman inside your head is ringing like, wait a minute, that's a black person perspective. Nah. So there's this fight that we have in America to where the conscious black man, revolutionary black man is seen as an extremist because we are going against the Western ideas that exist in your head that's been embedded by your enemy and a slave master's children. So the African man and the African woman right right now, there's an issue with feminism that exists out here. The white woman all across the planet Earth has been covert in spreading her feminism to black women and creating these uprisings that creates these family disagreements if you will and so the same thing with the gay white man has done out throughout the country because in all of these countries you can go to somewhere as remote as Swaziland you know where the people still have very ingrained tribal rituals and now they have an LGBT day and you think like, how did the gay white man go across the planet earth and get these people to do these things? Because as soon as you see the pictures of the revolutions, you see gay white men in front of it. Even in Africa, when they celebrate, they, they got gay pride days, but there's gay white men in most of the pictures. And I said, wow. Wow. How is like this? This is amazing. In South Africa and all other places. They have embedded their ideas into the minds of our people and basically said that you're not civilized if you don't view and believe these things the way that we believe. So when they met the Bushmen out here and they met other people, they told them that basically if you don't believe and do things the way we do, then you're primitive people and you're uncivilized. And so we have to civilize you. But in order for them to civilize you, they had to learn from the people of that land. Right. So. They first they learn from you, they steal it from you, then they make you forget it, and then they civilize you with what they know and make you think that they're more supreme. Now, the African out here, very advanced in many different ways, right? As we went to, um, there was going to the apartheid museum. When you first walk in, you look to your right. And there's a small placard that said, we are the thinkers. And so you move in and you read it. And it talks about how 77,000 years ago, there were geometrical carvings found on the walls. These geometrical carvings were done by the people there 77,000 years ago. Black people 77,000 years ago as a tool to communicate utilizing geometrical shapes and symbols. Now, when you think about the complexity of a person's mind, for one, communication being one of the most advanced levels of thinking, but to utilize geometrical shapes takes such a mathematical thinking system, and geometrical shapes also represents an entombment with the frequencies of the planet Earth and the universe itself, oh, long before hieroglyphics. Hieroglyphics hadn't even been done. I'm talking about geometrical shapes. This is way before hieroglyphics. See, sometimes we get stuck in Egypt. We got to go way further back than that for the greatness of our people, right? So when we think about that, here's a people that this 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 Caucasian man wasn't even alive 77,000 years ago, right? But have the nerve to meet people because their hierarchy is not set up the way that this man has set his up, considered these people primitive. So when they met the Bushmen, right, these are people that they considered, um, uh, they didn't have cattle. So they called them the people without cattle. They considered that to be uncivilized. They met them and they didn't have um, masters over them. They didn't have one chieftain that ran the other chieftain. So they considered that to be uncivilized and they considered them to be primitive. Not because these people were criminals, not because these people had crime or these people didn't know they land or weren't eaten well or peaceful or unintelligent and didn't know the layout of how to hunt in their land and move about. It was because they didn't think like them. So this 
and and I went to the market and this brother surprised me because he had this book called The Iceman Inheritance. And The Iceman Inheritance uh, was written by a white man in the study of the white man's mind going back to the cave environments because of the cold climate. They have always had a very cold disposition of wanting to rule and never being satisfied. There's, it changes your mind in different climates of thinking. So it's, it's interesting, right? When you come out here and you start to learn, you start to piece these things, different things together. And a lot of what we know as common knowledge, the African man has no idea about the perspectives. See, the African doesn't know that our music is not owned by black people, right? They don't know that the music that they listen to is not owned by a black man. They don't know that he's just a recording artist on that label. They don't know that Jewish control the record labels out here. So they're listening to it, not knowing that they're being programmed through an agenda, right, of music that's not even owned by us. So they think when they listen to the music that this is just purely from the conscience of what black people want to give to them and the message they want to give to them freely and independent with them having ownership of this commodity of hip hop. So it forms in their mind when you speak to them and they want to connect with you, they want to call you a nigga, right? Because they think that that's a term of endearment that sounds solid. Now, I'll be honest with you. There's something about when the African calls me a nigga that sounds just like when a white person calls me a nigga. It is. I don't like it at all, and I've had to check a few of them. Like, don't call me nigga. But they think because of hip-hop, this is what you want to be called as a term of endearment. So they might, and, and when even when they use it amongst each other, it sounds so artificial because I know that they have gotten that from us. But it's our fault. Because we've projected to the world, that's what we are. That's what we want to be called. And so they explained to me, look, we get everything from y'all. We get the way we dress, you know, the way we move, everything. We love the black American. We love the rapper. We love all of it. We get it from y'all. So when, when I go out there and I start to understand that, wait a minute. Today we got this thing to where a lot of black people want to buy dashikis want to buy into African culture and things of that nature. And so that's cool, but you're not buying it from the African. See, we've allowed the white man to middleman our culture to each other. So the white man sells the African hip-hop, right? And he sells the black man Africa, right? So there's a level that we don't get to appreciate each other because we're not buying it from each other. Right. We influence in each other, but we're not buying the influence from each other. But imagine if it was direct to consumer and direct to source, direct from culture, from each other. Then we will be stimulating the cultures of the African. We'll be stimulating the cultures of um, Africa and they will be stimulating our culture, buying hip hop directly from us. That will make a level of appreciation between the two. But since we're not middlemaning, since we're not owning it, we can't middleman, we can't sell it to each other. So there's this disconnect that, yes, we are influenced by each other, but we don't benefit from the influence that we get from each other. And this is a very important aspect of thinking that one must take a look at when it comes to, okay, now we must figure out how we begin this trade. You understand me? How do we begin this trade? How do we begin this import and export? So I can come out here and teach these Africans a lot of the ways that I know and I've been teaching them because they can import U.S. dollar easily and this stimulates their economy where you can feed a great portion of families that exist out here. They do crime out here, right? But their crime is different than gang culture that exists in America. So as I the video I just dropped, I was out in uh, one of the most dangerous parts in Johannesburg. You know, they, they, they like taking me to the hood. So we went to the hood, right? And when you get out there, it's all the young boys. They standing out there. They all drinking. They all smoking. You know, skinny though. Very, very skinny. And that's important to note because, you know, I'm out there, you know, oh my Muhammad Ali musculars and everything. So I'm not really tripping off them. Their culture is more robbery than anything. Like they, they see you and they want to rob. 
Now I go out there, I got all my rings, my chains on, and so they see me and you know, they they want to get some, but I'm looking at them like y'all too skinny to get anything from me. I'll beat all y'all last. Y'all need to relax, all right? All this mugging and stuff, you need to relax. They don't talk about <laughs> So anyway, man, it, it it was interesting though, because I'm telling them like you know, a lot of the killings that happen in America through gang violence are senseless. The boys don't even go and get no money. A lot of the, the, the gangsters back in the day and, and the gang murder, they weren't even taking your wallet and stealing from you. They were just killing you over color. And, it was, and I'm explaining to them, they say, that's that's what they do? They just kill you senselessly? They not stealing your money? It's not over money and stuff like that? Like, they, they rob out of necessity because they literally need to get their next meal. And here you are walking around with forty dollars to $50,000 worth of rands on, you know what I mean, walking past these people who hungry and trying to buy a white loaf of bread, you know what I mean, and that they can't afford to get unless they got 20 rands on them. So it's interesting because you're putting, you, you put in a platter in front of the wolves. So, but... Their criminality is different because it's based on survival a lot. And that's not to say it's not in America, but it's a different level. And ours is more murder. Theirs is more robbery. So, you know, in my mind, I felt a little more safer because I'm like, these little dudes ain't about to rob me. And, you know, everybody don't have no guns out there. You know what I mean? A lot of times they get a fake gun and try to rob you. And, and some of them try to do, um, um, they try to get, uh, or the knives, they'll try to shank you or something. Yeah, sister. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's been an interesting experience, man. I've been learning a lot, connecting a lot of the dots, and I see a lot of the solutions that can happen. You know, for one, um, when you come out here to Africa, you don't come as a tourist. You have to come as you're coming back home. And that's the important part. And that was the spirit that I took because some Africans had told me that when I was in the UK. They said, don't go as a tourist. Don't go as a tourist. You're going back to Africa. You understand me? And they said, the blessing that black Americans have is the fact that you don't know what part of Africa you come from. So you get to claim it all. So you're not as divided as the people who exist within Africa. Because the one thing you have to understand is the African man can't truly can't freely travel through Africa, right? And they say that they're so divided that, you know, if one person can come from three hours away, but they speak a different dialect, they speak a different language, and they look up at each other like, oh, they're not from here. And as we can move freely throughout the United States, we know how we can travel three hours and we're in another state. Six hours, we're in another state. Well, they travel six hours, they're in another country if they're on the plane. Three hours, they're in another country, but they need a passport to travel. And so I was just talking to the young brothers, they're like 23, 24. They said, we just now getting our pa passport. And the average ticket price is $300, $400, which is a lot that transfers into their money. You understand? 4,000 rands or something crazy like that. So... The average person can't afford to even, the average African can't afford to travel through Africa, you know, um, that comes from these, un, these, these impoverished environments. And when you think about that, you say, wow, that is interesting because the way that they divided it up, make it hard for you to travel and they make it hard for the people to be able to connect. Right. So imagine if you needed a passport to travel in every state that was in America. It will make it hard, and a lot of people would never travel in America. So you would never, there would be people on the West Coast, which there are today, that are never connect to the black that's in the East Coast. And that's how the Southern African and the West African, the Indian, East African, and all of them, they never connect because they can't go anywhere. So, you know, I was just imploring them to travel and how to do it. I said, you know what? It's not that you can't afford to travel, just like the black American out here, you can afford to travel. But you have to prioritize what you spend your money on. So I said, I gave him this example. I said, look, think about how much money you spent on liquor, weed, and entertainment. And if you reallocated those funds and saved them towards travel, you can go wherever you want to. And I thought about that. Because they know every dollar they get, they're going to spend 60 to 70% on weed, liquor, or entertainment. So... 
that's the issue that we have as well. It's not a lack of money. It's reprioritizing our investments and reallocating funds to goals and things of that nature. So I've been I've been really taking in a lot. I've been really learning a lot about the culture around the people. Just the the the. I, I think there's a beauty that exists out here. Just listening, watching the colors. Uh, that 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 are out here. So I'm I'm actually working on a um, collection uh, for the Crowns collection that's going to be um, based off um, my experience here in South Africa, and it's going to be based off the colors here in South Africa, and mostly like the working class colors of the people that work every day out here. Um, it's going to be fire. I can't wait to pull it out. I've been super inspired, super tapped in. Um, and also, I want to tell y'all before I get out of here, because I got about 10 minutes left. Um, I went to what they call Adam's Calendar. Adam's Calendar is the oldest megalithic site in the world. It predates the pyramids. It predates um, all other megalithic sites around the world. So we was traveling, and you know, I, I heard about the site. I didn't know about it at first. Um, I didn't know that it was, you know, in South Africa and a lot of Africans haven't even been there themselves. And this site, you know, the foremost research on this site is by a man named Michael Tellinger. Michael Tellinger connects it to Enlil. Um, Enlil is, you know, supposed to be a part of the Anunnaki's. And they say that, you know, this particular site, though, is built around gold mines because South Africa is responsible for like 60 to 70% of the world goes and has the largest gold mines and diamond mines in the world. So this place is very mineralized and very rich. There's gold all around here. So I was explaining to them gold water, things of that nature. So, you know, they believe that the Anunnaki's um, built it and um, had it as like quarters for the places that um, were mining gold because they believed that they had the people as slaves. And for those who are not Sumerian, with Anunnaki talking about going to the Sumerian texts and, you know, they believe that ancient aliens built these sites. But the interesting thing about all of that, if you actually go to the site, they tested the ground and the ground is actually electrical and the stones vibrate. And when they tested it, it came out to like in a geometrical shape, the resonant field of the vibrations. So it's a very powerful actual field. And they say if you test the compass in that field, it goes crazy, which I didn't, I didn't know to do because Blue was telling me about this earlier. So I grounded myself there. Now, we made this journey there. And I'm not going to lie. Along the journey, I was a little worried because we start the journey and, you know, it's getting misty. It gets foggy as hell. The foggy, it was foggy as hell. Like you couldn't see nothing in front of you. 20 feet in front, you can't see anything. Now on a clear day, you can see for miles and miles and miles out. So it was already kind of like, what the hell are we doing here, man? And I'm with the one who booked me and the two small Africans. And I'm like, man, I don't know. Wildlife out here, I can't see anything. It's quiet. We see the horses over there. I don't know if they wild. They won't run up on us. You know what I'm talking about? So as we walk in, at first, you know, we get a little lost and we end up having to turn around. Then we find this trail. The trail, of course, says do not enter. But, of course, we enter. Um, so we're going up to the trail and we're walking for about a mile. And I don't see anything. You understand me? And we just walking. And I'm like, yo, what the hell are we going to? Every step, I'm just thinking, like, every step is a step back we're going to have to walk back to. And it's not like a real trail. It's like a really skinny trail. It's like three feet. And you kind of try to follow these white um, paints that was left on some of the stones from the previous people who had took the trek before. So you have to walk, but on one side, you're starting to go upward towards the hill, and it starts to go into higher elevation. And so we're walking, and then sometimes you hear like something rustling through the bush, and I'm looking like, I don't know if it's like lions, you know what I'm talking about? My mind is just going everywhere. I don't even think they got lions over there, but I don't know. 
You know what I'm talking about? I'm in Africa, and they got me on a trail going to the goddamn megalithic alien ancient site. And I'm just thinking, like, yo, this shit crazy, B. You know what I'm talking about? Who the hell have African trips like this, man? Take me back to the hotel. I need to go chill for a second. <laughs> so I'm on there, and we just keep walking. We keep walking, and we keep walking, and I'm not seeing nothing. And I'm thinking, like, when we pull up, like, it's going to be, like, 100 feet away. Like, as soon as we get there, we pull up to the site. Cool. We see the stones. This is dope. But, no, this turns out into a full journey, y'all. So, I mean, like, we walking for some miles. And I'm like, yo, where the hell is we walking to? I don't think this site is real. You know what I'm saying? So, we keep going. We keep going. Then we get to the bushes. So, now... The trail is kind of closed off. So now the African brother that's with us, he going to break a bush off. He breaking it off the tree and he's swatting down the bushes to get through. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we on some Jumanji shit now. <laughs> I said, it just got real. So we walking through. I'm like, y'all still want to keep going? So at this point, I said, you know what? Let me grab me a stick. You know what I'm saying? So I grab my stick and I feel a little more comfortable because I said, if anything run up on me, I'm going to hit it with the stick. Now, all I got to do is outrun these two Africans and I'm good. You know what I mean? So that's all I was thinking. So we keep on going and we get about another mile in and we have to go up this little hill because it the, the track closes off. We have to go up this hill and we don't see any more of the white stones guiding us anymore. But when you get up there, you kind of see this little road. And there's this sign. And there's horses right there. And so, you know, intuitively, we're like, well, let's follow this road. And so we keep walking. And the GPSs are not telling us anything because it's telling us that we arrived already. That was the thing. Like, it kept saying that you arrived 300 feet ahead, we get 300 feet ahead, they're saying you arrived 800 feet ahead. It just kept changing. I'm like, yo, when the hell is we going to arrive? So we finally see a stone, but it wasn't the stones that we were looking for because when we looked on the map or we looked on the internet, the internet shows like it's on a flat land and it's on its cliff. And at this cliff, you can see a beautiful view from like 100 miles out of Africa. And so that's what we're looking for. But it's so foggy that we can't see anything. So when you look over the cliff, you actually can't see nothing. So we get to the point where you see in the video, I was meditating, there was this waterfall. And kind of find out the locals believe that there's this black mermaid that exists in this waterfall. You know what I mean? And she'd be over there chilling. Now, I ain't gonna lie. I don't think there's a mermaid there. Only because I feel like if there's a black mermaid there, she would have came out and greeted 19 Keys and said, what's up or something. That's all I'm saying. But if people say they seen it, I'm not here to doubt. But I ain't see it. So anyway, I stopped. I did my meditation. You know what I'm talking about? And I'm sitting there just chilling. And I'm tapped in. You can just feel the energy resonating. So we got up and we decided to keep walking down. And lo and behold, it was magical. We finally found it. You know what I mean? And it was just so powerful. When I first took off my shoes, I felt like electrical convulsions go through my body. Like my body really was like, like I felt that energy like really tap into my pineal gland. And it was amazing. And we was just grounded and meditated a little bit. I crowned two African brothers for getting us there. I'm talking about and tapping in. And I was just tapping into the ancestors and, and really just activating my DNA in that area. You know what I'm talking about? And it was really a very powerful experience. Like, really powerful. You know what I'm talking about? The energy over there was everything. So, that was really one of the highlights of my trip. Yeah, you know I did the gold water there. You know I had the gold water. Especially in that region. You know what I mean? And afterwards, I really, like, I've been having the most vivid dreams ever out here. Like, they've been full-on movies. You know what I'm talking about? Because I'm on the gold as well. So I'm tapped in with my gold water. So, um, yeah, it's been an amazing trip so far. And it's still not over. And I'm still here. And I'm debating on where I want to go. Do I want to extend the trip or whatever? But I, I implore everybody to come to Africa. Um, and don't come as a tourist. Come back to Africa. Because your DNA has already been here. So next year, I will be taking a trip. Um, and bringing people with me 
And so that's something that we can all plan together. And I want to be able to bring a really big amount of people, you know what I mean, with me. And, you know, we can create something very dope. But um, I appreciate y'all for tapping in and listening, man. Um, This whole conversation, if you want to send it to somebody else, it will be on my podcast to be able to listen to. Um, And so make sure you tell people about the podcast. Make sure you support the podcast monetarily. Um, make sure you crown yourself, um, make sure you get you some gold water, make sure you read up about Africa, make sure you just read period and get you some knowledge and empower yourself, um, create business and industry every single day. I was telling them that you got to utilize this internet for all it's worth because the information is there. Stop wasting your time. You can empower yourself. Tap in and don't tap out. It's 19 keys with electrical thought patterns and conversations. And y'all just listened to my trip so far as I went back to Africa, activating my DNA. Peace. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.